Hi. My name is Alicia Lee, and my voice doesn't normally sound like this. Marcy wasn't kidding around when she said the devil is at work. So that must mean I have something to say tonight, right? So despite what it sounds like, despite what it sounds like, I'm so happy to be here. And this is our first retreat in a couple of years, and that alone makes it special. But you know what makes it really special is what we're after this weekend and what we're after together, which is to seek a fresh encounter with Jesus. Has anyone been wondering what that actually means? Right? Like, what's an encounter? Like, what are, we, what are we really after here? Well, encounter means experience. It means personal contact. It means running into someone, meeting someone. And that's what we want. We want to run into Jesus. We want to meet Jesus so that we don't just know about Jesus, so that we know Jesus personally. It's what we're seeking this weekend. And we have to start thinking beyond this weekend, too, as we get started, because you know, our hope is that this weekend would be a catalyst, or in some cases, maybe re-enliven fellowship with God. You know, fellowship meaning to share life not just encounter, not just a moment, not just a weekend, but a life shared. But it doesn't end there either. You know, fellowship with God is what we're after, but we're also after fellowship with one another. And it's not the separate things that it seems to be. God intricately wove them together. He presented them together in Scripture we have a really unique opportunity this weekend to really begin pursuing both. So tonight, tonight's about preparation. It's about preparing ourselves for encounter and for what lies beyond. And we're going to do that by studying and putting into action just a couple of verses in 1 John. Um, so 1 John the author is John, of course. He was one of Jesus' disciples, but not just any disciple. The Bible says he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he has something important to tell us about what it means to love Jesus, what it means to be loved by Jesus. John wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote Revelations. And then in between those, he wrote the letters, three letters. And tonight we're studying the first of those three letters. Um, it's actually going to be the touchstone for the retreat. You know, we're going to talk about lots of other scripture, but we're going to keep coming back to 1 John all weekend long. Whoa, that, that just happened? Um, so 1 John, John wrote it to the churches during his time to really bring Jesus' message into focus. And I believe that the letter was written for us, for tonight, for this weekend, to prepare us. Um, so if you guys have your Bibles, the Passion Translation, 1 John, is found on page 683. That's where it starts. I'll give you a few seconds just to get it open. If you start scanning it, what you'll read is that John says he's seen and he's heard Jesus directly. He's touched him. He's touched Jesus. He's had the encounter of all encounters. He's had fellowship and he comes away with a message for us. The whole letter is his message, but it's summed up in a verse. It's verse 3. You can look at it in your Bible, and it should be up here on this screen too. All right, there we go. So let's read it together. So we proclaim to you 
but we have seen and heard about this life giver so that we may share and enjoy this life together. As I read this verse over and over again and really let it soak into me, I realized John's not talking in a straight line. You know, he says, let me tell you what I know about Jesus. And the thing I would expect him to say next is so that you could share life with Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He says, let me tell you what I know about Jesus. And then he makes a right turn. He says, so that we may share and enjoy this life together. And that's when I started to see that he was making a circle with the words. All right, let's go to the next slide. Um, so let's read it again. So we proclaim to you, you being you and you and me, each of us as individuals, what we have seen and heard about this life giver, that's Christ, so that we may share and enjoy this life together, that's community. And that's the circle in a verse. That's the circle with three points, you, Christ, and community. Now, John draws the circle a few times in the letter. The next time he does it again is in verse 7. And repetition is important in the Bible. God knows that's how we learn. So I liked the circle I saw in verse 3, but then I loved the circle I saw in verse 7. I thought, this, this is it. So um, verse 7 reads like this. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. The first underlined word is we, but it's the royal we. He means you and me as individuals. And you see Christ again, and you see community again. And on its face, it looks like the same circle. But this second circle, this next verse, acknowledges the realities of us and our world. John says, if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him. He's acknowledging that sometimes we don't. You know, sometimes we fall into sin, which means that while unbroken fellowship is the goal, sometimes fellowship gets broken, which is why we are in continually, why we are in continual need of the blood of Jesus. But he's not just acknowledging reality. He's also upping the ante. He's urging us to action. He's saying, hey, Brothers and sisters, let's live in the pure light together. Tonight is about preparing ourselves for encounter, and we're going to do that by looking at the three components of the circle. We'll start with Christ, we'll go to community, and then we'll go to you. And my hope is that by the end, we will understand what it means to live life on this beautiful circle of light that he's drawn for us. But my hope is also that we'll be ready to take some tangible next steps that prepare us for encounter. I'm talking about confession. So let's talk about it for a minute here before we get to it at the end. What is confession? And how is it different or the same versus repentance? What I'm about to say is not from the Bible. It's just my sense. In the simplest terms, I think of confession as the act and repentance as the intention. Confession is the actual admission that you've sinned, and repentance is the inner regret or remorse. And it should be accompanied by an intention to turn away from your sin. These things go hand in hand. If you confess but you're not repentant, there's no power in that. But 
if you're repentant but don't confess, then are you truly repentant? Right? True repentance should lead you to a desire to be free from confession. There's a lot more to say about that, but for the purposes of our conversation tonight, we'll leave it there. You know, I'm going to use confession and repentance somewhat interchangeably, and we're going to assume that I'm talking about confession, true confession motivated by repentance, and true repentance, which leads to confession. And these aren't new ideas. John's not innovating on the gospel. It's been central to the good news from the very start. So let's just keep that in the back of our minds as we move through the message. All right, so part one, Christ. Each of the four Gospels tells about the life of Christ um, in a different way. They all start in a different way. Some start with the birth of Jesus. Some start with John the Baptist. The fourth Gospel is the book of John, and it's my favorite. Because John takes it all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and it starts with three beautiful words. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And the book of John starts with these same three words. Let's go to the next slide. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. These are my favorite verses in the Bible. These words vibrate for me. The truth and the power are palpable to me. And I remember the first time I came to understand that the word is Jesus, I was blown away. So let's break down what John is saying. By calling Jesus the word, he's telling us without telling us that the person of Jesus Christ is the culmination of every word that God has ever spoken. And the person of Jesus Christ is the final word of God. And somehow, even though he is with God, meaning that he's separate from God, he also is God. At the same time, in his own right, through him, all things were made. Meaning he was there at the beginning, before there even was a beginning, before anything was made. He wasn't made. He was doing the making and the creating with God, as God. It's mind-boggling. It's mysterious. It defies reason, and yet it has the heavy weight of truth. And you should know, if you sense any truth in what I just said, even the tiniest grain of truth, then know that you've been chosen. God chooses who sees. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he chooses who sees. So just know that you were chosen and hold on to that. There's a lot more I can say about Jesus, and actually I was planning to say a lot more, but I think I'm going to leave it there. Actually, let me say one more thing. Sometimes when I talk about Jesus, I feel this sense of inadequacy. You know, I'm always trying to find the very best words, the most persuasive words, because I worry that you're going to ask yourselves, you know, why should I believe her? And if you're actually asking yourself that right now, you know, why should I believe her? Then be comforted by this, because I take comfort in this. Jesus didn't expect people to take his word for it, not during his ministry and not now. In John chapter 4, 
right before he's about to pray for the son of an officer of Galilee, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It would be great if Jesus spoke and we believed, but that's not how it works. You know, without a gap between his word and our belief, there would be no need for faith. There's a gap which faith bridges, and there is nothing more pleasing to God than when we bridge the gap with our choice to have faith. But we need help to bridge the gap, and he understands this about us. And so his ministry had a very intentional cadence. Jesus preached the truth, and then he demonstrated it with power to back it up through miracles, signs, and wonders. He healed people. He cast out demons. He walked on water. Nature bowed down to him. Truth, then power. Truth, then power. So as we seek encounter this weekend, we have to understand who we're seeking it with. Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Christ, who lives, who is with God, who is God. Christ, who's not done bringing people into truth, and he's not done bringing it in power. And keep in mind, as we keep moving through the message, it's Christ who promises to lead us in confession. All right, so that's part one. Part two is community. When I started to see John's words as a circle, it helped me to see that he actually wasn't saying anything new. He was interpreting something that Jesus himself already said. Um, in Matthew 22, can we put that slide up? Matthew 22, Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, what are you saying? A circle is not a new idea. All right, so to help us understand the second point on this circle, let's ask a couple of questions. Number one, who does Jesus mean when he, says, when he says neighbor? That's number one. And number two, why does God care about neighbors? All right, so number one, who does Jesus mean by neighbor? Now, different translations will use different words. The NIV translation uses the word neighbor. You know, the Passion Translation, which you guys have, uses friend. Some translations use others. I'm using community. But no matter what word you use, community or friend or neighbor or others, God's point is the same. He's talking about whoever I put on your path. And nothing illustrates this point like the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells this story in Luke. There's a Jewish man, and he's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked by robbers. He is stripped naked, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And three men come walking down that road. The first is a Jewish priest. The Jewish priest sees him, and he crosses the street so that he doesn't have to run into him. The next man to walk by is a Levite. That's a temple assistant to the Jewish priests. He does the same thing. He crosses the street so he doesn't have to run into the man in need. And the third man, the third man who's a Samaritan, who the Jews hold in very low esteem. He's the least likely to help the Jewish man, but he's the one who stops, and he stoops down to him. And with tender compassion, he cares for his wounds, and he puts him on his own donkey. And with his own money, he makes sure that the man is cared for at the inn. 
neighbor, friend, community, others. It's anyone that the Lord puts on your path. It doesn't matter if they look like you or go to your church. None of that could be true, and the Lord could still be putting them on your path. So that's who God means when he says neighbor. Now let's talk about why God cares about neighbors, why he cares so much about community. And let's look at it for a minute in purely worldly terms, which I think is really valuable sometimes because every good thing in this world is just a shadow of a heavenly reality, right? But it's more tangible to us, so it helps us to understand the heavens. And does anyone have siblings here? Do your parents love it when you and your siblings hang out independent of them? Mine do. There have been times when I'm not as close to my siblings and I won't talk to them for a while and I'll always get a phone call from my mother. Could you call your brother? Could you invite your sister over? Parents love when their children love each other. They delight in it. That delight, that desire is a shadow of God's desire for his children to love each other. God created each of us, loves each of us. Of course he wants us to love each other. And he gives us enough so that we can. His love is the source of our love. God pours love into us. And he doesn't do it with a measuring cup. He pours with a heavy and generous hand. So it overflows out of us and onto those around us. His love is the source, and our love for others becomes evidence of our love relationship with him. But it's not just about overflow. It's not just the evidence. We're also called to choose it. Our choice is a powerful thing. I talked about our choice, right? To bridge the gap between his word and our belief. That choice is called faith. And faith in Christ is the only thing that can save us. God wants us to use that same powerful choice to choose our neighbors. He wants us to claim our neighbors the way the Samaritan claimed his, because it's a blessing. It's a blessing from the Lord, and he wants you to claim it. I don't think I need a quote scripture you know, to make the point that community is a blessing. We know it. We crave it. God pre-wired us to receive this blessing. We need people to know us. We need them to support us, to encourage us, and that need goes the other direction too. We need to know people. We need to support people. We need to encourage people. Scripture does talk about it though. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. If either of them fall down, one can help the other up. Now, this next part is where the circle really becomes a circle because community isn't just about you and me. It's not just about us. God's design is that community would lead us closer to him. I wonder about that moment when the Samaritan man stooped down low to help the Jewish man. You know, I wonder if he saw through God's eyes just for a moment. You know, if in his compassion, he tapped into the Lord's compassion, even for a moment. I wonder how powerful that must have felt. And for the Jewish man, I wondered as he was being cared for, did he feel the hands of God on him? You know, did he feel the awe at God's provision? Community leads us back to Christ, and it's how God designed it. It's how he designed the church, a body with many parts, building the kingdom of God together under Christ. Community is a blessing, and it can be a really important part of confession, too, and we'll, we'll get to that soon. 
But the thing is, blessings sure don't feel like blessings sometimes. Even the Bible acknowledges that community is hard. The author of Hebrews 10 says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Community is hard. All right, on to the next part. You. Let's start with some simple truths about you. You were created by God. You are loved by God. You are seen by God. I want to share a couple stories with you. This is a season of doing new things for me. The first new thing that I'm doing is I'm having a baby. Um, I'm about nine weeks along with baby number three, and I know that applause would have been louder if it was baby number one. Baby, <laughs> baby number three is already getting the short end of the stick. <laughs> um, there is a lot I could tell you about my kids and what I've learned from raising them so far, but this is what I want to say tonight. God spoke each of my three children into being. I had my son Noah in 2017. And before I got pregnant, a woman in my community group invited me and Jason over to her apartment for lunch. And it took three courses of lunch for her to get up the nerve to tell us why she had invited us over. She said, "Um, God told me to tell you that you're pregnant. (laughs) She was so glad to get that off her chest. And I wasn't pregnant, not at that moment, but I became pregnant. And one month later, I called her to tell her the good news. After Noah turned one, we were at church. It was actually the day that I gave my testimony about what the Holy Spirit was doing in my life. And that day, someone who's here actually prayed for me and said, God told me you're pregnant. And once again, I wasn't. But one month later, I called her with the good news. So Lucy turned two and a half recently. You know where this is going? And on February 6th, I actually just checked my phone right before this to make sure on February 6th, I get a text from someone in this room, and she had a dream that I was pregnant again, and it was so vivid. She said she had to look at my Instagram to make sure it was a dream and not real life. I wasn't pregnant when she texted me, but one month later, on March 5th, I texted her back, and I said, hey, God told you I was pregnant, I was, and I am. The Bible says that God spoke the heavens and the earth into being, and I don't think I really knew what that meant until he spoke my children into being. He spoke me into being. He spoke you into being. Romans says he calls into being things that were not. God made us, and that which God made, he loves. A couple weekends ago, Jason and I were at a Bethel conference. Um, If you've never heard of Bethel, it's a pretty famous church based in Redding, California. And they put on this one-day conference. And the focus was on prophecy. Um, And at the start of the day, I walk into their prophetic booths where they have students speaking over people. And um, the student speaking over me was a young girl. She was probably 22, 23 years old. She didn't know my name, didn't know anything about me. She put her hands on my shoulders. And she waited and listened And then she moved one hand over to my heart, and she said, I feel like God wants to tell you you're doing a really 
good job. I'm in a season of doing new things. The baby's not the only new thing. Preaching is a new thing. I'm really sorry, I know you paid money to be here, but it's a new thing. <laughs> I'm starting a new business. And in this season of doing new things, I have found myself needing to hear words of encouragement way more than usual from my husband, from my friends, from, from all of you. You know, after my last sermon a couple of weeks ago, it felt really good when I got text messages and people stopped me and Logan said some really nice things to me and it felt really good, but it wasn't enough. Something was missing. There was something that I can only describe as a hollowness in my heart and I didn't know what it was. Until she said, I feel like God wants you to know you're doing a really good job. In that moment, that hollow feeling that I had been carrying around for weeks was instantly filled up. When the one that I needed to hear from all along spoke. You know, and God doesn't fill you up with a measuring cup. You know, he pours with a generous hand. I feel like I said that already. <laughs> but he poured that message on me. You know, that he loves me, that he sees me, and I just stood there as long as I could, just receiving it. I know I said this is about you, and it's really only been about me so far. <laughs> but it's really, it's the only way I know how to tell you that he loves you, that he created you, that he sees you. If you've never asked God to show you, I really hope you will this weekend. Because the beloved needs to hear it directly from the lover. You know, I did, and I've... I've never been the same. All right, now onto the harder stuff. I want to talk about sin, but not sin itself or the fact that we're sinners. You know, I think we actually really kind of understand that about ourselves and about our broken world. But I think what we're less aware of, what we're less in touch with, is our desperate need to be free from sin. God created us in his image. We were created in the image of the Holy One, the Righteous One. But when we pass into this world, it's like we step into a room of funhouse mirrors. Everywhere we look, all we can see is a distorted image. You know, we can kind of tell who we were created to be, but our image is stretched in unnatural ways. Distorted by sin, made ugly by sin. It, It might be fun to look around for a minute, but at the core of our being... We despise the distorted image. Adam and Eve, when they sin, the first thing they do is cover themselves up. We don't want to see ourselves distorted by sin. We're desperate to be freed from sin. But we don't know it. We can't see that that's the problem. So we try all these other ways to escape the funhouse mirrors. We justify ourselves in all sorts of other ways through worldly achievement and ambition, for example, just for example. Maybe we try to dull our senses right, with drinking or drugs or anything else that might just blunt the edges of our acute awareness of our distorted image. But God made us. He loves us and he sees us and he sees our need to be free from sin. And in his mercy, he met our desperate need from the beginning with Christ. He said, you can stop justifying yourself. And instead, through faith in Christ, you are justified. Through faith in Christ, all sin, past, present, and future is all atoned for. It's all done. It's done for you on the cross. And a person found by Jesus, 
person saved by Jesus can never be lost. That's a done deal. Our salvation is a done deal. And yet, and yet, even after we're saved, we continue to sin. John in his letter says the goal should be to not sin. We should earnestly strive not to sin, but he says don't fool yourself. Even if we try with all of our might, we have to realize that we will sin. And so we continue to need freedom from sin. Listen to what Paul cries out in Romans. This is Paul who wrote half the New Testament. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. Do you hear the urgency in Paul's words? God does. And it turns out he's a God who doesn't just care about our salvation. He doesn't say, oh, you're safe. You're good. See you later in heaven. No, he's a God who wants to continually free us from sin in this life to taste heaven here on earth. All right, can we go to the last slide now? Uh, the last, last one. We'll see if it pops up. But I want to put a New York City spin on this. I want to look again at the circle that John drew with his words. And let's say that this circle is a wonderful cobblestone street in downtown Manhattan. Now let's say it's Late Street, Late street on a spring day. You, know, you should be walking in the light on Late Street with Christ, with your community in unbroken fellowship. But when sin finds you, it's like you stumble into a manhole. You're technically still on Late Street. You're still saved. Nothing can change that, but you're in darkness. Your relationship with Christ suffers. Your relationship with others suffer, and it's not what God wants for you. God doesn't want you in the manhole. He wants you to be in the spring sunshine, and so he's given you a lifeline, a literal lifeline to climb out of the manhole, to climb out of the darkness and into the light where you belong. That lifeline is called confession. It's a loaded word, I know, but let's talk about it. Let's go back to verse 7, if you still have that open in your Bibles. Um, John says, but if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another. And then he adds this. He adds, and the blood of Jesus' son continually cleanses, continually cleanses us from all sin. He's giving us a clue a reference to the power of the cross, and then he fully explains it a couple of verses later. Now look at verse 9 in your Bible. You can go ahead and underline it. But if we freely admit our sins when his light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. If we freely admit our sins. Confession is the lifeline he gives us to climb out of the manhole, to climb out of the darkness and back into the light that he has for us. Confession and repentance. This is not a new idea from John. It's been central to the good news from the very start. And you can tell God really doesn't want us to miss it because he says it and then he says it again. This is what I mean. The Bible tells us about how God very carefully links together John the Baptist and Jesus. You know, from the prophecies about them to their conception, to their birth, so that we know their ministries are linked John the Baptist comes first. He prepares the way for Jesus, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
not long after Jesus starts his ministry. And the very first thing that Jesus preaches is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. God says it, and then he says it again. And to make sure we definitely don't miss it, he says it again at the end. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appears again to his disciples. And before he ascends to heaven, he gives them their marching orders. And this is what he said to them. Now you must go into all the nations and preach repentance and forgiveness of sins so that they will turn to me. The message of repentance has been core to the message of Christ from the first day of his ministry to the last. And God doesn't want us to miss the ongoing power it can have in our lives now. And that's what we have to understand about confession. You know, that it's for us. It's not a price that we have to pay. The price has been paid. Right? The price was paid on the cross. This is not a price. It's not a tax. It's not a burden or an obligation. It's not a box to check. David, in Psalm 32, says, When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's talking about unconfessed sin. And it reminds me of Paul's words in Romans. You know, he says, what a wretched man I am. There's an urgency and a darkness in their words. Confession is meant to lift us out of that darkness so that we can walk in this life the way that Christ intended in the light, full of joy and unbroken fellowship with him and with each other. All right, now let's get practical. Let's talk about how to go about claiming the power of confession for our lives. The Bible actually doesn't give us an instruction manual for it. But what we have is better than an instruction manual. The Bible promises us that God will lead us in the process. If you look at verse 9 again, it says, But we freely admit our sins. But if we freely admit our sins when his light uncovers them. When his light uncovers them. Confession starts with revelation from God. He'll show you your sin if you ask. He'll probably show you even if you don't ask. Um, But he's taken responsibility for showing it to you first. Then comes your part. You freely admit your sin, but he'll be gracious with your part too. He'll lead you through your part too. The way back into light is going to be different for each of us. It's going to be different in each circumstance. But here's three examples of what confession looks like based on scripture. First, it could be what I'll call individual confession between you and the Lord. Psalm 51 gives us a beautiful example of how powerful this can be. David has just committed adultery and murder. And once God reveals his sin to him, You know, just like he promises, he sends the prophet Nathan to tell David his sin, and David confesses, and he cries out to God in confession. And if you look at Psalm 51, he doesn't make a list of his sins. He knows that God knows them, and he knows that no list he could make would be long enough. And he rejects his sin. He doesn't want to stay in it. He wants to turn away from it. But most important, most important, he just makes himself worshipfully and unabashedly naked before the Lord. He says, God, you are abundant love, and I am ashamed. You know, he makes himself naked so that God could cover him. That's individual confession, and it is powerful. The second and third types of confession are 
forms of confession to others. But before we get there, you know, it strikes me that David doesn't confess to others. The Bible's actually quiet on that point, so I'm assuming he doesn't confess to others. And I wonder, you know, the Bible makes it clear that God forgives David. He forgives David, but the rest of David's rule is a disaster. It's incest and rape and murder and strife. And I wonder, you know, God uses men in the Bible to show us what we're to do, but he also uses men in the Bible to show us what we're not to do. I wonder what could have been if David had confessed to others. So the second kind of confession is confession to others, but specifically to those you've sinned against. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, if you're at the altar and you're offering a gift, which is arguably one of your most important moments with God, he said, if you're at the altar and you remember that a brother or sister may have something against you, run, go. Like, that is pressing. You've got to go and be reconciled with them and then come back. It's that important. That's the second type. The third type of confession is just confession to others, not necessarily those you've sinned against, but someone other than the Lord. James in chapter 5 urges us to do this. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And this one is potentially so important that God doesn't just put it on those who've sinned. He turns it around, and in Matthew says, hey, if you know your brother or sister has sinned, you should go to them one-on-one and help them. So individual confession, confession to those you've sinned against, and confession to others. Three kinds of confession. But it's not a blueprint or an instruction manual. You know, there's no checklist. It's just different ways that God may lead you to set you free, to get you into the light. I have one last story for you. I really don't want to. I really don't want to do this one. It's really unflattering. So I'm really humbling myself here, but that's part of it, right? So 15 years ago, I met my husband Jason. Um, We were both working at Goldman Sachs. We were both in our 20s, and when you are in your 20s and you're working all the time, your work life and your dating life tend to intersect. And when we first started dating, Jason's ex-girlfriend at the office found out, and she was very upset. There was drama. Now, at the time, one of my best friends was friends with Jason's ex, and she said, I'm not going to take sides. I'm staying out of this. Smart girl. But you know who wasn't a smart girl? Me. I was pissed. You know, how could she not pick sides? It really hurt me. I became extremely angry. And that anger had no outlet except destruction. I ended our friendship. I blew up an entire circle of friends. And that wasn't enough. My anger still wasn't satisfied. Anytime her name came up, every chance I got, I diminished her, tried to hurt her. And the way that I felt hurt, right? 15 years went by, and a lot happened in 15 years. I got married. I got saved. Then really learned who God was. Um, I had two kids, became a lay pastor, and somewhere in all that, in my intimate moments with the Lord, he showed me my sin. He showed me the destructive force of my sinful unforgiveness, and there was individual confession between me and the Lord. But the God who made me and loves me and sees me said that's not enough. You're forgiven, but you're not quite free yet. 
There was still a kernel of consequence that remained in my heart 15 years later, and God desired for me to be free from it. So this past December, I left my job at Goldman, and in the last couple of days, I get hundreds of phone calls and emails from colleagues and clients, people who wanted to talk to me before I left, but God said no. He's like, that's not important. You could do that later. He said, you go find your friend. And so I did. With my phone ringing off the hook, I met up with my friend at Starbucks, and I apologized for my behavior all those years ago. And she was so gracious, as she's always been. She said, no, don't worry. We've both moved on, and we have. But I still confessed my wrong, and I apologized for the hurt that I caused. And as I'm speaking to her, tears start to stream out of this eye. And I'm not crying. I know that sounds weird to say, but I'm not. And yet these tears are coming out of my face, and I think it was the physical manifestation um, of a spiritual release that was happening real time. God wanted to free me. He wanted me to be fully free, and I finally was. He wants the same thing for you. So here's what we're going to do tonight. To prepare ourselves for encounter. We've acknowledged who he is. You know, the good life, he wants us to walk in the light with him and with community. Now, we're going to claim the lifeline that he's given to us to get out of the dark and into the light. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to set apart the next five minutes for confession. You can start it in your seat. Quiet your mind. Forget everything that happened today. Forget everything that I've said. And just be. And when your mind is quiet, and this may take a while, but when your mind is quiet, reach out to God. Start talking to him. Ask him to show you what to do. If you need help, maybe you could open up um, David's confession in Psalm 51 and let his words be your words until you find your own. Then, if you feel God prompting you to pray with others, I really encourage you to take his lead. It might look different for everyone. You know, for some people, that might mean grabbing your spouse and pulling your chairs off to the side. Or maybe it's your roommate or your friend. Or maybe you feel like you need to pray with the leader of the church. You know, I'm going to ask everyone who's on the prayer team to stand all around the room, in the back and on the sides. You know, you may not know them, but that's okay. I do. And I can tell you there are some Saul to Pauls in that group. Right? There are some people who walked in darkness and then walked in light, so nothing you say will surprise them. And we're prepared. We're prepared to pray for you with the heart of Christ. All right, so let me start us in prayer. You know, I'll dedicate the next five minutes, and then we'll let the lead, let the Lord lead us through it. Heavenly Father, Lord of all, thank you for choosing these, your children, to be here tonight. Thank you for this space. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that during the next five minutes that you speak and that you open hearts and ears to listen, Lord, and that you lead us just the way that you promised you would, Lord. And I pray that you set the captives free. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
Thank you.